Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Hi, listeners. This is Season 6, Episode 31. If my voice sounds a little different, it's because I'm in the most unlikely place recording the podcast episode today. I am in a little um, off-the-beaten-path playroom, off of a waiting room, where my daughter is somewhere inside the bowels of this building having no surgery today. Believe it or not, this was my open window to record today's podcast, so it's going to sound a little funny. You know, uh, I was listening to the last episode, episode 30. Uh, After I record them and produce them, um, I sometimes listen to them to see, you know, did that go the way I thought it went? (laughs) And I'm listening to last the last episode, and in the middle of it, I have a coughing fit, and it all came back to me. I thought, oh, I forgot to go back and edit out the coughing fit. So I promise, I promise, no more unedited coughing fits today. So this is season six. It's episode 31. My name is Rick. I'm author of the recently released book, The Suicide Solution, and a bunch of other books, including uh, the Jesus-centered life and spiritual grit and the God who fights for you. And uh, just over a year ago, the Jesus-centered daily, a daily devotional, 365-day devotional that is really designed to draw you into deeper and deeper intimacy with Jesus because you see the facets of his beauty unfolding from day to day. So it was uh, sort of the capstone of my of uh, 20 years of uh, Jesus-centered writing and speaking and leading groups, that that little devotional kind of draws from the uh, iceberg under the surface of the sea of all that that was that has been me for the last two decades. So, if you're looking for something that might be a good gift for someone starting the new year, um, head on over to Amazon, check out Jesus-centered daily. You can also uh, take a look inside. The devotional just to see what they're like uh, as well. It's unusual. Uh, it's a experiential devotional, meaning I tried to create ideas to go with the devotional thoughts that are sensory based. They use all five of your senses uh, throughout the devotional. So there's some unusual things that you I don't think you probably have seen in a devotional before that are in this one. So I just encourage you to either go out and get it for yourself, or if you have friends that. Um, that you're thinking about as the as the new year approaches, uh, it's a it's a great gift for them, and not a bad last minute Christmas gift either. Suicide Solution, the latest one that just came out, is a is a is a book about uh, Jesus and go go figure, Jesus and clinical practice and latest research surrounding um, how to approach anxiety, depression, and suicidality. And it's really a book that learns from Jesus about what it means to live holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y. And when we live holy the way Jesus did, we create a bulwark against the downward pressure or slide towards depression, anxiety, and suicidality. So I co-wrote it with Dr. Daniel Amina of the Amen Clinics, and it is an incredibly practical book. Uh, Two-thirds of it is a menu of um, 
really innovative and experimental ways of living this out in your everyday life. So I encourage you to check that out. If you know someone who might benefit from it, go for it. So this is the sixth episode in our ongoing focus that I'm calling Jesus in the real world. We're simply pursuing the heart of Jesus through the lens of things that are going on in the world or in our world right now. Today, couldn't be more timely, today's episode is called Gift Giving, and uh, we are about to enter in to the gift-giving window. <laughs> if you're like me, uh, you have some already wrapped gifts under your tree, and you're wondering, did I hit the mark or not? Uh, so today, we focus on gift-giving. So uh, let's start off with a question that I think is going to sound obvious when I first say it, but I'd like you to think about this and mull it over after I ask this. In our culture today, is Christmas a religious holiday or a secular holiday? Is Christmas a religious holiday primarily or a secular holiday? Think about it for a second. Now, I asked a group of about 15 people uh, a week or so ago, that very same question and gave them a chance to think about it. And then on a whiteboard, I put up their votes. And I have to say that in that group, about two thirds to three quarters of that group said it's become primarily a secular holiday. Now, I think what some people were saying is that the holiday is sacred and religious for those who believe. But for the wider culture, it's just become more of a secularized experience, something that's more really about um, delight and wonder and magic, <laughs> all of the words they use in car commercials around the holidays, all of the ways they, they try to get you to uh, enter into the portal of wonder and then buy a car from them. <laughs> so... I think it was in that group, it wasn't just in that group that that uh, gave that sort of feedback about um, about Christmas being more secular than religious. I think if we really look at that hard, um, I, I think that we'd have to admit that the season has sort of been co-opted by the culture and it's become kind of a non-religious religious holiday for a lot of people. And then one of the reactions to that is, well, we got to keep Christ in Christmas. We've got to hang on to this. And it actually creates, I think, a shrill response among those who follow Jesus that, that when we just demand that this season um, overtly be about Jesus. Um, it's You never see Jesus doing this, by the way. He never demands that people love, respect, and honor him. He doesn't do it. Um, he invites instead. So I, I think it's, uh, it's misplaced to fight for the uh, slide of this holiday becoming secular. And actually, it, uh, Jesus handled challenges like this much more shrewdly than we do. And instead of fighting what people have already embraced and believed, instead, he invites them to experience him in a different way, to taste and see that he's good. And when he does that, he lets the natural consequences of tasting and seeing that he's good overcome. It, it, it's, a, it's a way of wooing us instead of dictating to us. Uh, 
Jesus is a wooer, not a dictator. But of course, the messaging around Christmas is deeply embedded in us at no other time during the year is gift giving such a major focus of our life. And, you know, we have to, we have to admit there's a lot on the line for us. Um, people get into fights at the mall in the name of gift giving, right? And the culture around gift giving and stuff is really uh, central to all of the changed behavior patterns in our life right now. And it's also the target of one of our most beloved holiday stories. Think about the message of Dr. Seuss's How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Remember that, that old animated special from about, I think it's about 55 years old now. So, wow, all, a lifetime old. Um, but I can't remember a year in my life when I didn't watch How the Grinch Stole Christmas. So that's a lot of, that, that's a lot of time spent viewing The Grinch. But uh, I'd like you to remember the, uh, something that happened in the last couple of minutes of the classic animated version of the story. Um, that uh, if you'll remember the, the storyline where, where the Grinch just is sick of all the delight and joy of the Who's in Whoville. And so he thinks that uh, his, his impression is that Christmas is all about the giving of gifts and the nice decorations and the food. That, that's really, if you took all those things away, the people would be totally sad, like he's totally sad. So he decides to take all that stuff away, 100% sure that that was going to ruin Christmas for everyone. And then he has this experience of, oh my gosh, I took everything away and it didn't take away their joy or delight. What is happening here? So we're going to listen to a short scene here that those a couple of minutes from that moment when the Grinch realizes what Christmas might really be about. So I want you to think as you're listening to this, what is the message that Dr. Seuss was trying to deliver about the meaning of Christmas? What do you think he was trying to communicate through this story of the Grinch about the meaning of Christmas? Let's listen. Poo-poo to the Who's, he was grinchily humming. They're finding out now that no Christmas is coming. They're just waking up. I know just what they'll do. Their mouths will hang open a minute or two. Then the Who's down in Whoville will all cry, Boo-hoo. That's a noise, grinned the Grinch, that I simply must hear. He paused, and the Grinch put a hand to his ear. And he did hear a sound rising over the snow. It started in low, then it started to grow. This sound wasn't sad. What? This sound sounded glad. 
Every who down in Whoville, the tall and the small, was singing without any presence at all. He hadn't stopped Christmas from coming. It came. Somehow or other, it came just the same. And the Grinch, with his Grinch feet, ice cold in the snow, stood puzzling and puzzling. How could it be so? It came without ribbons. It came without tags. It came without packages, boxes, or bags. He puzzled and puzzled till his puzzler was sore. Then the Grinch thought of something he hadn't before. Maybe Christmas, he thought, doesn't come from a store. Maybe Christmas, perhaps, means a little bit more. All right, the Grinch realizes that, well, maybe Christmas doesn't come from a store. Maybe Christmas means a little bit more. What is the little bit more meaning of Christmas implied by this story? If you think about what we just accept that the Grinch comes to this understanding, we have this vague sense of what a little bit more means, but what does that mean? Um, and even more, if this is true, if Christmas is really about something a little bit more, then why does the Grinch's original belief hang on so much? <laughs> like his original belief is that Christmas is really about the gifts and the decorations and the stuff. And if we watch this show, and there's many other shows that have a similar message to them, if we watch this show and we believe what we're hearing is true, then why does the Grinch's original belief about Christmas hang on to us so much? Why does it Christmas still seem to be about these things? So first of all, what's, what's the little bit more that we are thinking when we think about uh, the meaning of Christmas? I, I think the little bit more by the is story. a little what bit vague. <laughs> uh, I think it means that uh, Christmas is about close relationships and recapturing or reclaiming the kinds of uh, family times and friend times that we all long for, but don't experience throughout the year, that it's sort of a pause where we can kind of try to re-embrace or recapture the things that we long for, but don't have. Um, and that there is a sense of wonder about or mystery about the transcendence of our relationships with each other. And that's what Christmas really brings back in. It's, it's sort of an, um, it's, it's sort of a religious experience that's out there in the ether and it doesn't really focus on a, a person in that religious experience. It's more like the experience itself comes closest to a transcendent experience in our life. And that's what Christmas really is all about in the end. So, of course, most of us every year we vow to make, you know, make this Christmas different, but we get swept up in the current of our culture and we feel almost powerless to do anything different, really. And instead of guilting ourselves or living in regret, I wonder what if we slowed down to pay attention to the gift giving habits of Jesus 
and let those infect our heart instead. Instead of trying to shame ourselves or guilt ourselves or discipline ourselves into this year, I'm going to do it differently because at this point, we've already not done it differently, right? (laughs) Um, What if instead of that shaming path, we simply slowed down enough to invite Jesus to infect us with his spirit of gift giving, that we slowed down to appreciate the kinds of gifts he gives and how he gives them. And, and if we expose ourselves to that, then watch what happens in our soul. Watch what changes in our soul because of the invitation into his heart. So I'd like to read to you a story told by Dr. Alan Zimmerman. He's a consultant and respected expert in the positive communication arena. <laughs> I didn't even know there was such an arena, but I ran across this this story, this article that Dr. Alan Zimmerman wrote called 10 Relationship Building Gifts, and I thought it was fascinating. So let me just read you the intro, and then I'm going to just give you a brief explanation of the 10 gifts that are implied by the title. So again, 10 Relationship Building Gifts by Dr. Alan Zimmerman. Here's what he writes. Some people think Christmas is all about gifts. Oh, well, the Grinch is one of those, right? (laughs) Uh, some people think Christmas is all about gifts, beautifully wrapped things bought in a store or shipped from Amazon. In reality, Christmas is all about relationships. Again, perhaps the message of how the Grinch stole Christmas. A nun taught me that lesson years ago, and it changed my life forever. She taught me that there are 10 gifts you can give to others that will dramatically improve your relationships at home and your teamwork on the job. The nun was Sister Margaret Schweiss, She was in my audience when I was delivering a relationship building seminar for the staff of a nearby hospital. And at the end of the seminar, Sister Margaret pulled me aside and told me how liberating and empowering and life-changing the program was for her. And to thank me, she said she'd be giving me a gift every day for the rest of her life. Well, I was surprised and humbled to say the least. And it was a promise she kept. She offered to pray for me every day. And that's what she did. Now, let me share Sister Margaret's 10 gifts with you because they may be the best Christmas gifts you could ever give anyone. The gifts of Christmas. Here we go. Number one, the gift of listening. Psychologists tell us that one of the greatest things we can do for one another is actively listen. So why not give this valuable gift to those individuals on your list who live alone and have no one else to talk to? This means you really listen. No interrupting, no daydreaming, no walking away and no planning your response. Just listen. How about number two, the gift of affection? Take the time to give your loved ones signs of affection. Be generous with your hugs, your kisses, your gentle squeezes of the hand, and your pats on the back. Let these tiny actions demonstrate the great love you have inside of you. Number three, the gift of a note. Write notes to your loved ones. They can be as simple as I love you or as creative as a sonnet. Put your notes where they will surprise those special people, in his lunch, in her purse, among his socks, on her pantry shelf. Though the notes may be a surprise, they'll never be forgotten. Number four, the gift of laughter. Everyone loves to laugh. Not just cut out a cartoon or clip a joke or copy a riddle or say a clever article, save a clever article and give it to the other person. Your gift will say, I love to laugh with you. Number five, the gift of a game. Most people have at least one game they like to play, whether it's tennis, 
Number five, the gift of a game. Most people have at least one game they like to play, whether it's tennis, golf, poker, chess, or checkers. Offer to play your loved one's favorite game with him or her. Even if you lose, you'll be a winner because together you'll have a shared, you'll have a shared experience. Number six, the gift of a favor. Do favors for those special people on your list. Help with the dishes, type up that letter, clean out the basement, shovel the driveway, run to the store. This gift is made more valuable when it anticipates a request rather than when it responds to one. Number seven, the gift of a cheerful disposition. Try to be cheerful around those you love and those you work with. That means no complaining, no feeling sorry for yourself, no nasty comments, no screaming, and no pessimistic predictions. Your gift of cheerfulness will be a precious gift for everyone, including yourself. Number eight, the gift of space. There are times in our lives when we want nothing more than to be left alone. Become more sensitive to those times in the lives of others, then respond generously by giving them the gift of solitude or privacy, of do not disturb times, of being left alone. Number nine, the gift of a compliment. Pay your loved ones compliments. A simple, you look good in blue, or I like your hair that way, or good supper, honey, can be a tremendous value to people who may feel they've been being taken for granted. P.S., this gift works wonders on the job as well. Compliment someone on doing a great job. And last, number 10, the gift of prayer. This may be the most immaterial yet most valuable gifts you could ever give, the gift of prayer. Pray for all those people on your Christmas shopping list and let them know that you pray for them. Praying for someone is another way of saying you are special, so special to me that I often talk to God about you. All right, there you have the 10 relationship building gifts from Dr. Alan Zimmerman. So uh, I was fascinated by this list and just the idea that the best gifts are relational intrigued me. And it just made me think about Jesus. So Sister Schweiss gave Dr. Zimmerman these 10 relational gifts. And if you think about what the common thread that runs through all of them, it's really the gift of our focused presence and our attention to the other in our life. This truly is the most remarkable gift we can give another person to pay full attention to them, to taste and see the beauty uh, that reflects the, the beauty of Jesus in them. Even if it's sometimes hard to see that reflection, uh, what happens when we notice what others don't in, in the life of someone else, or we give what others don't give to them? So let's make it here our mission of discovery to find as many examples as we can of Jesus giving each of these gifts to someone. For example, let's let, here's just what I'm trying to get at. For the gift of listening, how can we find examples of Jesus giving the gift of listening really listening to someone. Well, let's, let's dive into it. Let, let's uh, touch on each one of the gifts and think about an example of Jesus giving that gift to someone. So, so many people that Jesus encountered, let's take uh, the gift of listening first. So many people that Jesus encountered um, received the gift of focused attention from him. So uh, think about the, the lepers that he healed, 10 lepers, uh, giving his full attention to them. Only one of them comes back. And with that one who comes back, Jesus elevates his courage, elevates his commitment to gratitude. 
really sees something in him and reflects back what he sees. Or what about the woman at the well, uh, the Samaritan woman at the well? Wow. Talk about paying focused attention to someone. We always think that uh, Jesus, using his Jesus powers, could read the mind of this woman somehow. But what if uh, a lot of that interaction was simply because Jesus pays much, much more ridiculous attention to people than we do, where he reflects back to her the, the pain of her life first. And it's such a shock for the woman to hear him accurately describe the pain of her life that it, it undoes her. It makes her move from a place of resistance and closed down, and she's guarding herself to suddenly vulnerable. She opens herself to him and gives access to him, to her heart. Or what about the tax gatherers? Uh, Zacchaeus is one, uh, an obvious example. Uh, Jesus is just walking down the street and he sees this, this um, pariah up in the tree uh, waiting for him to pass by. And he stops and he notices Zacchaeus. He, he notices his passion, his commitment to wanting to see Jesus. And instead of uh, just noting it and passing by, he says, nope, I'm coming to your house today, Zacchaeus. He elevates the status of Zacchaeus by saying, I will go into your house. No one goes into Zacchaeus's house who is of good repute. And here is the Messiah inviting himself to a meal in Zacchaeus's house. So many people, one after the other, that Jesus listens to. And listening to is just another way of saying, paying ridiculous attention to. But what about the gift of affection? So, I mean, the, 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 some of these are so easy. Every single time Jesus healed someone, um, he's giving them the gift of affection. But think about this. He often touched the people that he healed, especially those who had been starved for touch. Like, for instance, those 10 lepers. Or, or uh, when someone with leprosy was brought to him for healing, Jesus always touched them. Now, you're not supposed to touch them. And like I said, many of these people had not been touched in years. Think of the power of the affection that they felt, not only when they were healed, but healed through the touch of his hand. Uh, he often brought emotional healing in addition to physical healing to people. I love telling the story of when the, uh, the paralyzed man is brought to Jesus, not the one where they uh, lowered him through the roof, but another time when a paralyzed man was brought to Jesus and um, uh, he looks at this man, and the first thing he says to him is, your sins are forgiven. This really infuriates the Pharisees. They're like, who does this guy think he is? And Jesus says, essentially, well, it's just as easy to, to uh, forgive his sins as to heal his body. But just for the heck of it, I'll throw in healing his body. And then he does that. Think of the affection that he has for this man. He doesn't want this man just to be physically whole. He wants the burden of his sin to be lifted off of him. What an affectionate, affectionate thing to do. Or what about um, the story of the prodigal son, where the uh, younger son takes his inheritance from his dad and basically says, you're dead to me. Just give me the money I would have gotten if you had died and leaves and spends it all wastes it all, comes back incredibly broken 
uh, cognizant of his own sin. And the father doesn't fold his arms and wait for the son to, you know, own up to his sin. Instead, no, in the story, the father runs to the son and embraces him and puts on the best coat. Think about the affection that Jesus has, um, has included and threaded into that story that, that when we come to him with our sin, he responds with great affection. What about the gift of a note? Number three. Um, so I want you to think about, well, you know, did Jesus give notes to people? Well, think about what the action of giving someone a note, it's, it's giving them a permanent, uh, a permanent record of something you're saying to them, really. Now we can say kind things to people, but if we write it in a note, it's something you can carry with you and go back to and, and kind of let yourself sink into it. Uh, so one, one way we could think about this is the naming of Simon Peter. Um, so uh, he could have said, Peter, uh, or, or he could have said, Simon, I, I see in you uh, all of the foundational qualities that I need to build the church um, after I, my death and resurrection. Uh, you are a rock. He could have said that to Simon. And he did say that, but instead he does something more. He gives him the gift of a note, something permanent. He renames him. He not only says that Simon has the qualities of a rock in him, he renames him Petros, the rock, giving him a permanent reminder of what Jesus has said about his soul. It's powerful. Um uh, let's see, what's the next one here? Let's go to number four, the gift of laughter. So everyone needs to laugh, right? Everyone loves to laugh. This is one of those things that Jesus certainly did a lot of, but because of the way scripture is written, it doesn't really give a lot of context sometimes to how Jesus said things. Um, so we, we just default to, oh, he must've said that in a serious, somber way. Giving the gift of laughter. So uh, think about the, one of my favorite stories that's just so crazy. When the two uh, religious leaders come to where he's staying and Peter and Jesus uh, greet the two religious leaders, but they're there to demand the temple tax. They want to make sure that Jesus has paid the temple tax. So it's a very serious, you know, kind of tense situation. Uh, Jesus is being, you know, there, there's some suspicion around whether he's paid what he's supposed to. Um, the temple tax goes to support the, the functioning of the temple and, and uh, everyone is supposed to pay it. And they're questioning whether Jesus has. And so Jesus uh, tells Peter to go down to the shore, catch a fish, and inside the fish's mouth will be a coin that will pay the temple tax for both of them. Man, can you imagine after the two religious leaders leave and Jesus and Peter are with the rest of the disciples? How, how Jesus and Peter retell this story, there had to be so much laughter around this story. Jesus is just toying with these guys. Um, so um, he, he's, he, I think Jesus also produced a lot of awkward laughter. <laughs> there are so many times when he says and does things that people are just like, what did he say? <laughs> you know, that like uh, my favorite story in all the Bible is uh, the story of the Canaanite woman who follows along behind Jesus, just 
begging, begging him that he would heal his, her daughter from possession of demons. And the disciples are frustrated and irritated with her. And, um, and Jesus finally turns to talk to her. And we always imagine Jesus being really stern in this encounter, but I think he wasn't. And when he says, I've come for only the children of Israel, not for, you know, basically for dogs like you. Um, and the woman responds, yeah, but even the dogs get the scraps from the master's table. Um, I think Jesus laughed when he, when she said that he's certainly delighted, you know, that from the context of the story, he's delighted by what she says, but what if in this entire encounter, he had a big smile on his face. What if he knew what he was already intending and already communicated that to the woman with it, with his face. And what if that, that lighthearted way of approaching this allowed the woman to have the courage she needed to say, yes, but Yes, but uh, I think Jesus was making people laugh a lot more than we ever get. And we know this must be true because children were so drawn to him. And children are drawn to, to people who like to laugh, people who have that energy about them. They're naturally drawn to those people, and children were naturally drawn to Jesus. So we know he often gave the gift of laughter to those around him. What about the gift of a game? Now, that's a hard one, isn't it? You know, uh, when we think about, of course, we have no record of Jesus playing a game with anyone, right? Except what I just said, he was often with children. And when you're with children, um, play is the air they breathe. So when Jesus was with children, as much as he was, he must have played children's games with them because the children love to be around him. But uh, I think you can also broaden the meaning of game by just thinking about what it means to engage people in kind of a, you could say, in a, in a lighthearted, competitive environment. So in that, if you think about it, playing a game that way, well, Jesus was always messing with people. He was always uh, teaching through um, stories that people didn't understand initially. So he was challenging them to rise to the occasion, understand his story. Um, he Think about uh, when he invited Peter to walk on the water. Think about, think about that scene, in, in it, not the heavily religious way that you've always seen it, but what if that was simply like a game where Jesus sees Peter and invites him, hey, just step over the boat. Let's see what happens. And Peter does. And in the middle of the two of them, Peter starts to sink and uh, Jesus grabs his hand. What if all of that was more playful than we usually think of? Um, and you could ask, here's, a, here's an interesting one. You could also say that Jesus played with Satan in the wilderness. If you think of a game as a competition of some kind where you're trying to outwit the other, well, that's definitely what the enemy of God was trying to do in the wilderness. He's trying to outwit Jesus. He was trying to convince him to do something that, that was wrong, that was sinful. And Jesus outwits the enemy in the end, tells him to go away, score one for Jesus. So Jesus gave the gift of a game even to his enemy. <laughs> what about the gift of a favor? The one that comes immediately to mind is the wedding at Cana. When the wine ran out too soon, and what an embarrassment and a humiliation this was going to be for the family putting on the, the wedding. 
And his mother comes to him and concerned that this humiliation is going to ruin the wedding and asks Jesus to perform his first miracle. And Jesus says, it's not really my time yet. And, but Mary looks at him, just going to imagine the motherly look that, that Mary gave Jesus and he just melts and he says, oh, okay, <laughs> I'll do it. He offers a favor, not only to the wedding party, but to his own mother when he does that. Or of course, whenever anyone asks for healing, um, when he stops and makes them whole again, what a favor. Um, or what about, what about Mary and Martha? When he shows up at their home and uh, Martha's scurrying around getting ready for things. And Mary is, Mary's, uh, uh, Martha's trying to shame Mary into helping her. And Jesus instead embraces what Mary is doing, offers her the favor of it's okay, Mary, you don't have to get up and help. Don't take on the shame that your sister's trying to put on you right now. I'm releasing you from it. Um, relax. Or you could say, look at the favor that Jesus gave uh, their brother, Lazarus. So Lazarus, at first, doesn't seem like a favor, does it? That Jesus delays his journey to heal Lazarus so to make sure that he's died uh, by the time he gets there. And then he calls him out of his grave and, re and restores him to life. I'd say that's probably the biggest favor anyone has ever received on the face of the earth is to be resurrected from the dead. So... <laughs> Jesus was always offering favors. Number seven is the gift of a cheerful disposition. Um, so people uh, love to be in the presence of Jesus. They were drawn to him. Why? How often do you feel drawn to a grumpy, somber, um, finger-wagging person? Well, it just doesn't happen. But you are drawn to people who emanate joy. And Jesus certainly emanated joy. His presence was magnetic with joy. A person who's truly free, when Jesus says, I've come to give freedom to the captives, well, he was already free. So free that no one had ever met a person as free as him. And part of that freedom is the freedom to have joy, to be cheerful, um, to be released into cheerfulness <laughs> so that you're not constantly with a, uh, with a furrowed brow, holding the weight of the world. No, Jesus was relaxed as, as uh, Dallas Willard describes him in one word, Jesus is relaxed. And in his relaxation, he's cheerful. Number eight, the gift of space, the gift of space. Well, think about the number of times that Jesus went off to pray on his own. It's, it's a huge theme in the gospels. He was constantly um, going off alone to have a little private conversation and download with, with his father. He modeled this for his disciples um, as a practice, as a way of living. So he was giving his disciples the gift of space by the modeling that he gave all the time to, to pray, to meditate, um, to, to be alone, um, there's this gift of being alone um, is so crucial to us as human beings. It's hard for us to hear the still small voice of Jesus or to uh, have time to actually listen to his voice if we don't go away to have space and silence and quiet in our lives. Even if you're an extrovert, we all need this 
we need a, a moment when we can slow down our soul and drink in the beauty of, of Jesus. Listen to what he has to say. I was just the other day, I, I really str- was struggling with something that um, uh, one, uh, three nights ago, uh, I was just uh, really wrestling with something and I didn't understand why. And my daughter and my wife said something to me after we watched a movie. And, and I just said, I can't be here. I, I, I'm struggling with something and I just, I got to go. And they were like startled. What's wrong? I said, I'm not mad. I just can't be here right now. So I went to bed and the next morning I got up early and uh, I got up early so I could have a long conversation with Jesus. Um, and I just said, Jesus, what's going on in me? And he reflected back to me exactly what was going on in me. And it released me. Um, I was able, once you understand from his perspective, what's happening to you. And I often ask Jesus that question, what's happening to me inside. And then he reflects back to me the truth. And once you know the truth, you can relax. And that's what happened with me. I could relax. I could tell my wife and daughter what was happening in me. I could invite them into my vulnerability around that. But the only way that would happen is through the gift of space. And that's why Jesus modeled it for us. How about number nine, the gift of a compliment? Um, how did Jesus um, offer compliments to people? Well, you can think about just even the calling of the disciples. Think about what a compliment that was to be singled out and invited to follow the Messiah. It was such a huge compliment that, at least in the case of Peter and Andrew and their brothers, James and John, are their relatives, James and John, that uh, that they left it all behind. They left their fishing business all behind right in the moment to follow Jesus because the compliment he gave them was, I will make you fishers of men. It's, it's an investment of deep belief in the impact of their life. Um, so uh, let's think about a, a few other examples here as well. Um, uh, of compliments. Uh, so think about uh, even that going back to that story that I said before, the Canaanite woman who was desperate to have her daughter healed of, of demons. Um, what Jesus says to her in front of everyone is, woman, you have incredible faith. You have great faith. Or the woman who was crying over Jesus' feet and anointing his feet with her tears and covering them with perfume and kissing his, kissing his feet. And Jesus stops in the middle of this and points out to the entire room full of gathered religious leaders. What an amazing woman this is. Look at what she's done. Look at what she's doing right now. He gives her the gift of a compliment. And, and in that setting, that gift of a compliment was scandalous. It was unbelievable. Why is he complimenting this woman? Doesn't he know who she is? It was scandalous to lift her up in this way, but this is what Jesus does. He reflects back what he sees. He sees beauty in us and he reflects it back. Are we listening? Have we slowed down enough? Talking about the gift of space again, to let him speak compliment to us. Have we done that? Um, yeah. One last little thing. Uh, this, this story just popped into my head. Right there on the cross, when Jesus is in agony, experiencing the most brutal form of execution known to man, he looks down at his mother 
And he says, mother, there's your son. He's talking about John. And he looks at John and says, John, there's your mother. He entrusts his mother to John. What a compliment. What a gift. And he entrusts his disciple, John, to his mother. He's essentially saying, John, you're now the son of my mother. Um, what the, a gift of compliment that is. The last one, number 10, is the gift of prayer. So, uh, you know, <laughs> there's almost a, a whole chapter in Luke where the uh, Luke 11, when uh, the disciples ask Jesus to teach them how to pray. And uh, um, it, they're asking him this because they know that the disciples of John the Baptist learned how to pray from him. And so they want Jesus to teach them about, about how to pray. And this is, of course, in Luke 11, when, when uh, Jesus gives them an example of a way in which to pray, which is we've turned into the Lord's Prayer. That's what we call it. Um, but then for half a chapter, he's teaching them about prayer. So first he gives an example of, and the Lord's prayer is an example of intimacy in a, in a prayer. It's, it's, uh, it's an intimate exchange. It's not formulaic and it's not designed to simply leverage a stingy God to give you what you want. It's a relational prayer. And then he goes into his little parable about, um, it doesn't even have a name. It's, it's the parable he tells about a friend who uh, goes to his other friend's house at midnight, wanting to borrow three loaves of bread. And, and the friend in the, in the house um, it says, it's past bedtime. I'm already in bed. I'm not getting out to get you bread. And in the story, the man knocking on the door just keeps knocking until finally his friend comes down to the front door and gives him what he's asked for. But so, by the way, this is another funny story Jesus told, because in this story, he has put himself in the place of the friend who's already gone to bed. He's actually put himself into the place of what we often think about God, that God doesn't want to be bothered by us, that God's already gone to bed and he, he just won't get up uh, and come to the door and give us what we need. Jesus, with I think with a smile on his face, is telling the story and he's putting himself in that role. And what he says is just keep knocking. Even if it doesn't feel like I'm going to come downstairs because I don't want to be bothered, even if that's what it feels like to you, keep knocking because I'm going to show up. I will show up at the door. So here Jesus is not only, he was constantly modeling prayer for his disciples, but here when they ask him to teach them about prayer, he totally upends every idea they ever had about prayer, which was really functional. Prayer was supposed to be functional. They didn't learn a great deal from the example of David, who David prayed intimate prayers. And his Psalms are very much like what Jesus describes when he says, this is how I want you to pray. Um, and then finally, in that section, this is where in our last episode, we looked at uh, you fathers, if your children ask for a fish, do you give them a snake instead? So that's right at the end of this whole section on prayer. And again, like we talked about in the last episode, here Jesus is saying prayer is really about the heart. It's about tasting and seeing the goodness of the heart. Uh, that's how he framed prayer. Well, uh, Sister Schweiss gave to Dr. Zimmerman these 10 relational gifts. And again, those gifts are really the gift of our focused presence and our attention to the other. So from the moment you listen to this podcast today, 
through this holiday season, let's say that your mission of discovery is to find as many ways you can um, experience and taste and see Jesus giving these gifts to others and let that infect you so it comes right back out of you, reflecting right back out of you to the people around you. Think of this simple lens as you walk through this holiday season. What relational gifts can I give to others? What, what, in what way can any of this menu of 10 gifts show up in the way that I am present to others during this holiday season? Don't make it a burden. Make it an invitation. Just invite Jesus to nudge you to give these gifts to those around you during this holiday season. All right, gang, there you have it. I hope you have a wonderful, wondrous time. And that uh, that that little statement from the Grinch, maybe Christmas doesn't come from a store, maybe Christmas means a little bit more. Maybe that little statement can connect to everything we just explored with Jesus. Maybe the little bit more the example Jesus has given us of gift giving. All right, this is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from ricklawrence.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on Google Play or iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll see you again in the new year.